we're going to do things just a shade different. We're going to do some history. Uh, if you want to just turn your Bibles, first off, to 1 Samuel 31, uh, starting chapter 2. First Samuel 31, verses 2 through 6 is what we're going to be looking at. Um, and if you're able, let's just stand and pray, and I'll read later as we, as we get into the message. Master, thank you for the gift, the gift that sets us free the cleansing blood, the sinless life given, the bridge that was built through your obedience. I pray this morning that we're obedient to the movement of the Spirit, that we're obedient to the truth of your word, and that we're obedient, Master, to your voice. We praise you this morning. And we thank you for this word and the power of it and the truth in it. And thank you that you're the living word. And now, Father, take my hands off this message. Use it and mold it for your glory and yours alone. We pray in the strong name of Jesus, who's our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Roy almost stole my message this morning with the kids as he talked about Memorial Day. That kind of tells you the quality of folks who got working with kids, doesn't it? Thank you for all who do. Uh, Memorial Day is, was originally called Decoration Day. Started in uh, 1865-66, not officially, but the uh, ladies of the Confederacy began to decorate the graves of those who had died, of the Confederates who had died. Around 1868 then, there's General John Logan, who was a northerner, uh, declared it on May 5th that there was going to be a decoration day or memorial day officially in the nation. So it was first observed on May 30th, 1868. And it's not, it's obviously not a new occurrence. We're, we're at 140, 142 years, whatever, from the first official memorial day or decoration day. Now, it, keep in mind, you know, the South's going to rise again. Have you heard that? Have you said that? <laughs> we won't get into that. We, sit on this side if the South's going to rise again. If it's not, you can sit on that side. <laughs> but this was something that, that they could never come to terms on. And the, the Confederates would not celebrate Decoration Day on May 30th until after World War I. When, when they start, when, because of World War I, there was no North and South. There was another common enemy that were, that was being fought. So at that point, they began to recognize it. But before that, they still had their own day. Most states had their own day. And even now, there's some states that still will not decorate the graves of Confederate soldiers except for their own special day. And I'm, I'm going to give you those. In Texas, they celebrate on January 19th. In Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and Mississippi on April 26th. South Carolina, April 10th. Louisiana and Tennessee, June 3rd, which is Jefferson Davis's birthday. So there's still the North and the South. 
there's still those who won't come together in that. And, and kind of like Baptist, isn't it? You know, there's some that we're just not going to do it that way because we've never done it that way. So this was, this was an anomaly when it started in 1868 that the Confederates wouldn't do it. But it was officially started. Now, in 1950, the 3rd Infantry, there's 100, I'm sorry, 12,000 members of the 3rd Infantry began decorating the 260,000 graves at Arlington National Cemetery. On the Thursday before Memorial Day, there'll be, there'll be those, those 1,200 going out with 260,000 flags. That's a quarter million plus 10,000. And they decorate every one of those graves with a flag. And then they stand watch all weekend to make sure not a single flag out of those 260,000 falls. And if it does, it's immediately put back. This is their way of honoring those who've died and gone before. 260,000. Now, 1951, there was some uh, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts started doing the same thing, and there's, there's 150,000 graves that they decorate. So it's not a thing to be treated casually. I work at Lowe's, and the great thing about Memorial Day is you put gas grills on sale. There's something wrong with that, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. There's no holiday in retail on Memorial Day. It's a, one of the biggest sales days. There's no holiday. I'm going to read a, a quote from the VFW. And this was in 2002, a quote from, this is the official quote from the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Changing the date merely to create three-day weekends has undermined the very meaning of the holiday. No doubt this has contributed greatly, contributed greatly to the general public's nonchalance, nonchalant observance of Memorial Day. We have a tendency to forget what it's about. We have a tendency to forget that this is to honor those who have fallen. We have a tendency to forget that those folks who went before us and sacrificed so much for us deserve a little honor. Deserve that. Now, as I studied a lot on this, who's been to the D-Day Memorial in Bedford? Let's see a show of hands. You need to go. Very, very meaningful thing. The reason it was placed there is because Bedford, Virginia, this is four hours away, three and a half hours away, gave up more people, more soldiers per capita in World War II than any other town in the United States. On D-Day, there was 19 soldiers died in a matter of hours from the little town of Bedford. But there was, there was 3,200 people in Bedford, and they lost 19 soldiers on D-Day. They lost three more within the next three months. Total of 22 soldiers died from that little town. It took six weeks before the news even reached Bedford, and it came across the teletype at Green's Drugstore in downtown Bedford, and the teletype began, War Department. Bedford, you have casualties. Six weeks before family members knew that their son or their brother or their husband had died. Nineteen soldiers in hours. There's a lot of human interest stories in that one. There was a Ray Stevens and a Roy Stevens. They were twins. And they were deployed together. They were on different boats. And Roy went in first. No, I'm sorry. Ray went in first and he offered a handshake to his brother Roy and said, just in case I don't make it. And he said, ah, 
I'll see you on the, on the beach. Well, he went on, and uh, Roy's ship, uh, the boat he was on, it hit an underwater obstacle, and it sank. So they picked him up out of the water, took him back for four days, and sent him back in. First thing he saw when he got on the beach four days later was a makeshift grave and his brother's dog tags nailed to the cross. Now, Roy made it back, and Roy still has anger towards those men who killed his brother. Now, granted, this was a shot-or-be-shot situation, and that's what war is. It's a shot-or-be-shot situation. So this was the setting for these men, but 19 died in that day, in, in hours. It's a little town of Bedford, and they've, they've um, built this overland arch, and it's... Um, 44 feet, 6 inches tall, and that represents 1944 on June 6th when this happened. So it's 44 feet, 6 inches. That's the significance of it. Easily seen from, from all the surrounding area. Now, I grew up in Clintwood with stories of the Korean War. There was three brothers. One was my grandfather. His name was Brack Powers. He had a brother named Wedford, and he had a brother named Vernon, and had others. But these three brothers were in their 40s during the Korean War, and they each sent a son off to the Korean War. Um, I'm going to read what I printed offline. Jarris E. Powers, Dickinson County, born 1932. Sergeant First Class, U.S. Army, service number 1335168, killed in action. Sergeant First Class Powers was a member of the 5th Cavalry Regiment, 1st Cavalry Division. He was killed in action while fighting the enemy in South Korea, Korea on October 4th, 1951. Sergeant First Class Powers awarded the Purple Heart, the Combat Infantryman's Badge, the Korean Service Medal, the United Nations Service Medal, the National Defense Service Medal, the Korean Presidential Unit Citation, and a Republic of Korea War Service Medal. This was Wedford's son. Jerry B. Powers, Dickinson County, born 1931, Private U.S. Army, Service number 1334919, killed in action. Private Powers was a member of the 10th Engineer Combat Battalion, 3rd Infantry Division. He was killed in action while fighting the enemy in North Korea on November 28, 1950. Private Powers was awarded the Purple Heart, the Korean Service Medal, the United Nations Service Medal, the National Defense Service Medal, the Korean Presidential Unit Citation, and the Republic of Korea War Service Medal. That was Brack's son. Vernon's son, Cecil, Survived the war, but he spent 33 months of it in the POW camp. He came out weighing 80 pounds. I lived next to him practically my whole life. He still lives beside my mother. And when Cecil reads, papers go like this. When he came back, his nerves were so gone that that, that was all he could do. Now, he, he lived a fruitful life, and he worked as a mechanic, and he retired a very talented man with his hands. And the only time I know him getting really angry was when Scott, his son, <clears throat> got a letter that they wanted to register for the Army. And he said, they'll kill me first. They won't take you. Now, Cecil was the only one who survived, but what he, the way he survived, he has scars on both shoulders from where they made him run around in a circle, and they held blowtorches on both sides of him as they made him run. Flames, and they've, he scarred his shoulders and his melted skin. That's what war is. That's what we're honoring today. Three brothers, 
Two lost a son. One was lost for 33 months. Torturous time, I understand. I, I was uh, young. Now, my uncle Jerry, dad's brother, celebrated his 19th birthday in Korea and was killed two days later. He was 19 years and two months old. Any 19-year-olds in here? It's young, very young. Now, we're going to get into the message a bit. I, I just wanted to, to understand what we're celebrating today. And I don't know if celebration is the right word, what we're honoring. First uh, Samuel 31, verses 2 through 6. We're talking battles. We're talking, we're talking D-Day when the, with the Bedford boys. We're talking Korea with the Powers boys. In chapter 31, we're talking about Samuel and his boys. Families are touched by this, is my point. Families are touched by war. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. Now Jonathan and David had an unusual friendship. They had a friendship that... that um, was so unusual, in fact, that Jonathan willingly gave up his right to the throne, willingly gave up his right to be king because he felt in his heart that God had set David aside to do that. That's not the normal human nature. It's not our normal human nature to give up anything for someone else, generally speaking, but to give up the throne because your friend David, you felt, was the better man. Now, that's a relationship of love, a relationship of commitment. But I want to read to you just a little bit about um, about his own exploits, if you will. Because he was, a, he was a good soldier in his own right. And that's in 1 Samuel 14, verses 12 and, 12 and 14. And this is when they were camped against the Philistines and were going to be fighting them. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor-bearer, Come on up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up, climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer and followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. These two young upstarts climbed the wall using their hands and feet. They scaled the wall, and they killed 20 men in the space of half an acre. Half an acre is about 22,000 square feet. It's 210 feet by 110 feet, something of that nature. And that's I know that because that's the size of property our house is sitting on. You know, it takes a while to mow it, but I don't know how it took to fight on it. But they climbed up, and in a short space of time, they killed 20 men. And it says in that first attack, it doesn't go on to say if he attacked again or again, but it says in that first attack, so Jonathan himself was a very able warrior. Jonathan probably had what it took to be king, but he believed that God had someone else set apart for it. His friend David. 
Now, we've heard the story of how Saul died. We've heard the story of how Jonathan and his two brothers died. Saul, if you saw there, he actually killed himself, fell on his sword to keep down the, the ridicule that the, that the Philistines were going to do to him. Now, we want to look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. This is another story of how Saul died. And there's a lot of reading in this, so bear with me. This first part, uh, verses 1 through 10, is when David is told of Saul's death. But I want you to look at the two versions. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Goboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? And Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over, over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he would not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, I went a little further on that, but I want to look at first off how he heard about it and then how he reacted to it. He heard from this Amalekite. Now, that's a little different than the story that, that was in Scripture in, in chapter 31 of, of uh, 1 Samuel. Now, this guy had ulterior motive. We talked a lot this morning in Sunday school about motive of the heart. And this guy, no doubt, when he came, he thought, well, I'll gain favor because I know that, and you, you know the story of David and Saul, where Saul was so jealous of David that he tried to kill him over and over and over and over. And, and David had just come back into his home country because he had been afraid of Saul, but he left for 16 months and actually was riding with the Philistines. And he was gone for 16 months because he thought, if I go into another country, Saul will quit looking for me. That's exactly what happened. But it was all over now. Everyone knew that David was to replace Saul. And now that Saul was gone, this Amalekite being, he was probably a gold digger, if I had to guess. And he thought, if I take the crown, and if I take the bracelet of Saul and I show it to David, David may give me a reward. His motive wasn't pure, and his story wasn't true. Because Scripture says that Saul fell on his own sword. He asked his armor-bearer to kill him. His armor-bearer would not. But the Amalekite took credit for it. Now, have you heard the term, don't kill the messenger? Well, too late for some. Moving on a little bit. David's, this is in verse 13. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Things turned bad for the Amalekite. His thought right now was, I'm going to get rewarded. And instead David said, how dare you? 
kill a king. How dare you go against God's anointed man? The man that God anointed king. What were you thinking? Why would you do that? In verse 15, Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Saul, Jonathan, and Jonathan's two brothers had died in battle. David, even though was Saul's replacement and had lived in fear for some years because of the way Saul acted, he still wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And he still believed in the authority of the king that was placed over him. He still believed that he should honor Saul. If you remember the story, and it's a couple of chapters back, David had two chances to kill Saul, and he let him go both times. Because he wouldn't raise his hand against God's anointed. This is the way God has it for now. Allow it to be so. Let me live in light of what God has ordained. Don't raise your hand against God's anointed. That can be so towards the pastor. Don't raise your hand against the man God's put over you. So David was very, very aware, very cognizant of the line of authority that Saul was his superior, even though he was going to take that throne. Let me show you his reaction. And this is something, picking up in verse 17, it says, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jasar. Now, it says he took up a lament. He wrote a song of remembrance for Saul and Jonathan. He honored them with a song that would live on even in 2010. It's still being spoke. It's still being sung maybe in some countries. But it was in a, in a book that's long lost, but it says in the book of Jasar. So David wrote this song. As, you know, David was the psalmist, and he wrote song after song, as we can read in, in the book of Psalms. But he wrote this to, as a tribute. We sang a lot of songs this morning in tribute of those who've died in the past, protecting us, giving us the freedom to meet here today, giving us the freedom to pursue a career, the freedom to pursue a job, the freedom to make a living, the freedom even to burn the flag. So there were songs we sing today to do that. This was a song that David wrote to honor Saul, who was the king over him, and Jonathan, who was his best friend. Look at this, pick it up in verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Now, a comment, Gath is on one extreme of the Philistine territory, and Ashkelon's on the other. So he's saying, don't tell it anywhere in that nation, because they'll make sport of them. So it says, lest the daughter of the Philistines be glad. In verse 21, old mountains of Gilboa. Now, he puts a curse on a mountain. May you neither have dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. He puts a curse on the mountain of Gilboa where Jonathan, his best friend, died and where Saul, his king, died. He said, I hope you never get rain again. I hope your fields will never be fruitful again. 
And he says, for theirs for the shield of the mighty was defiled. And when it says, no longer rubbed with oil, these were metal shields and they rubbed them to keep, to keep the rust down and, and to keep them, keep them clean. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. He's saying they didn't run from anything. And he goes on in 23, Saul and Jonathan. In life, they were loved and gracious. Now, why in the world would he say Saul was loved and gracious when Saul tried to kill him? You remember that? Saul tried to kill him, threw a spear at him. Over and over and over, Saul came against him, but he said in life, they were loved and gracious. That's the heart of a man who understands forgiveness. That's the heart of a man who knows that God has a bigger plan for him and don't get tied up in the little mundane things today because God has a better plan tomorrow. Don't worry about the little stuff. Don't sweat it. Because God has a greater plan. That's a lesson to me. Don't worry about the customer that calls you and calls you names because God has a greater plan. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the day in retail when the, when the contractor got really upset because his material was two hours late and I told him to order it two days ago. Don't worry about that. That's just a little commentary on things. But anyway, some days are just very trying but in the long scope of things, the long term, it means nothing. So David had enough grace about him to say that in life, they were loved and gracious. Isn't that a man of God speaking? That's the heart of a man of God. And he says, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. This is quite a tribute, isn't it? Quite a tribute. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Verse 25, and this is when it gets really personal. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. That's the heart of a man of God. What was said about David? He was a man after God's own heart. David had a, had a fantastic heart for people. Yeah, he was, a, he was a bloodthirsty king in battle, but God sent him to subdue the nations and establish his kingdom. And you can read the story leading up to this. It's pretty terrific. And then read beyond. This is before he was king, and this is when he gets anointed at this point. But the mighty had fallen. David was weeping. David called a fast. Honor those who have died to protect you. And it was all a time of war. You know, we have the war in Iraq. We have the war in Afghanistan. They're tragic. We get news in minutes, not six weeks like Bedford did. We know immediately what's happening. Bodies are returned to the United States in a matter of two or three days rather than six months or a year when, when they're exhumed and brought back. It's a different world, still the same struggle. So David was saying, honor those who have fallen. Honor those who protect the nation of Israel just as today we honor those who protected our rights in the United States. Now if you'll flip with me to Luke 22. Verse 
verse 14. We pick it up at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance. Now, Jesus was alive and well when he said this. A scant 30 hours later, he would be dead. But he said, as often as you take, break this bread and drink this cup, and we don't have communion today because of time, but when you do this, do this in remembrance. I mean, remembering what? Remembering the fact that four hours later, he was in the garden weeping tears of blood, sweating drops of blood. Remembering the fact that Six hours later, he was before Caiaphas. Remember the fact that later he was scourged and a crown of thorns driven on his head. Remembering that a few hours later, he was under the burden of the cross as he carried it up the Via Della Rosa. Remembering the darkness came and he breathed his last breath and he said, It's finished. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you do this. When you meet on Sunday mornings at Kingsway, remember that I gave it all for you. Do this, this worship, in remembrance of me. Sing these songs of praise in remembrance of me. Bow your knee in prayer in remembrance of me. That's why we're here, that's why we meet. Some of you this morning may not be able to say, Lord Jesus, I bow my head in remembrance of you because you don't know him. If that's the case, the altar is open. I'd like to ask the deacons to come down in a moment and stand at the front. We're here in remembrance of Christ Jesus and all he gave for us. Just as we're here to honor the men and women who've died to give us freedom. So do this. In remembrance of me. The invitation is going to be open to all who will come forward. Deacons, I pray you'll come down and if you need to do it in remembrance of him, pray. But stand here in the front in case anyone needs to come. Let's pray. Master, we're humbled by the sacrifice you made for us. We're humbled by the fact that you were sinless and yet you paid our price, my price. You paid my debt, something I can never pay. And this morning, dear Lord, we uh, meet in remembrance of you and what you've done. Check our hearts, check our motives, draw us to yourself. Holy Spirit, I pray you move among us and you'll touch hearts that need to make a first-time decision for Christ. As you'll touch hearts of those who've grown cold on you. You'll touch hearts, Father, those who 
need to forgive someone. We offer up this time of invitation to you and extend it, Father, to those within the hearing of this message. In the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.